will be the first two verses of the psalm. Let us hear the word of God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its seasons, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I wonder if you've noticed as you have read the Bible that throughout the Bible, we are told that there are ultimately only two kinds of people and ultimately only two ways to live. We encounter those two kinds of people and those two ways to live almost at the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis chapter 3, where in the wake of the tragedy of, of Adam's sin, The Lord addresses Satan in the guise of the serpent and says to him that he will raise up one from the seed of woman who will crush the serpent's head. And in Genesis 3.15, we are confronted with two kinds of people. There are those who are the seed of the serpent and there are those who are the seed of the woman. And ultimately, those two seeds, those two communities have two heads. The head of one is Satan and the head of other, the other is the Lord God Almighty. Two kinds of people. And those two kinds of people reveal themselves in the way that they live. Ultimately, the seed of the woman live to please the Lord. And the seed of the serpent live in rebellion and disobedience to the Lord. And that rebellion and disobedience is crystallized in their opposition to and hostility to the seed of the woman, who is ultimately, of course, as we read in Galatians 3, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it's Jesus who most vividly brings those two kinds of people And those two ways to live side by side as he comes to the conclusion of what we call his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Listen to what Jesus says. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow. And the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. You'll notice there that Jesus calls the two kinds of people the many and the few. And he calls the two ways to live 
the narrow way and the broad or the wide way. And the reality is that all of us uh, who are listening in, tuning in to the service of worship, that all of us are either among the many or among the few. And all of us are either on the narrow way that will lead us to life or we're on the broad way that will lead us to destruction. Two kinds of people and two ways to live. And it shouldn't surprise us then as we come to the songbook of God's old covenant people, not that the Psalms were exclusively the songbook of God's old covenant people, but in the main they were. It shouldn't therefore surprise us that right at the outset of the Psalter, the songbook of the people of God, we are brought face to face with those two kinds of people and with those two ways to live. Most probably the opening psalm and psalm two that immediately follows it are actually a constructed introduction to the book of Psalms. In Psalm 1, we are brought face to face with the identity of the truly happy man and woman. And in Psalm 2, we are told that God has a king who will crush ultimately all of God's enemies, but, as we read in verse 12 of chapter 2, be a shelter and a refuge for all who trust in him. And these two psalms, as I say, stand purposefully at the entrance door to the Psalter. They tell us there are two kinds of people, there are two ways to live, but there is one king to kiss and to serve. Let me say one more thing uh, before we consider these opening two verses in particular. Because we need to understand that behind the blessed man, as he is called in Psalm 1, behind the blessed man, there is an ultimately blessed man. Let me explain what I mean. When you read the Bible and follow its unfolding narrative, its eschatological drama, if you like, you realize that the, the great figures of Old Testament narrative, of Old Testament redemptive history, portray in themselves an outline beyond themselves. There were prophets who spoke the word of the Lord, but all of those prophets were fallible and in measure they failed, but they pointed beyond themselves to someone who would be an ultimate prophet, who would not only speak the word of the Lord, but who himself would be the word of the Lord. And it's the same with kings. There were kings, and sometimes in the Psalms in particular, you, you read passages, uh, perhaps like Psalm 47, and you think, can that really be applied to someone like David or Solomon? Well, only in measure, because ultimately they point beyond themselves to a greater king. And the same with priests. There were fallible priests. You've been studying the letter to the Hebrews, I know, for many months, and you've got many more months to come. 
and you've discovered that these priests um, were fallible. They could not effectively make atonement for sin. They had themselves to make atonement for their own sin, but they pointed beyond themselves to a greater priest who would come and effectively make atonement for sin. And it's the same with the blessed man or the righteous man. We are to see in them types and adumbrations, outlines of an ultimately blessed man, an ultimately righteous man who would faithfully, undeviatingly fulfill the law of the Lord. If you like, there is an inbuilt eschatological trajectory in redemptive history. Everything flows out of Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, the head of the seed of the serpent, Satan, and the head of the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything from Genesis 3.15 is a developing explication and unfolding of those two great realities. That's the drama, the cosmic drama that we read behind the the, the apparently seemingly almost innocuous statements that we read in the Old Testament. There is something more cosmic and dramatic going on. So when we encounter at the beginning of Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. You say, well, Lord, who on earth ever did that perfectly? Well, no one born of woman, except the one conceived in the womb of a woman, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does that perfectly as our representative head. Now, there are two things I want to notice with you in these opening verses. I want to consider briefly with you the nature of true religion. And then secondly, the focus of true religion. First of all, then, the nature of true religion. The first word of Psalm 1 is memorable and perhaps surprising. Blessed. Blessed is the man. In Hebrew, the word blessed is actually a plural. It literally means all the blessednesses or all the multitude of blessings that belongs to the man who does not walk in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. The opening word actually is better translated happy. In, in Hebrew, there are, there are two words essentially for blessed. One is almost always applied to God, Barach. And this other word, Ashrei, it simply means happy, delightfully happy, overflowingly happy. The recipient of happinesses in abundance is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of mockers. And what this opening word is saying to us is that the religion of the Bible is a happy 
religion. That would surprise many people. Our view of God is that he is high and holy and exalted. We were singing holy, 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 and rightly so. He is the triune Lord, exalted and unapproachable light. He is glorious, ineffably glorious. We are to stand in awe of him and to fear him. But it's very striking that in his first letter to Timothy, chapter 6, at verse 15, Paul speaks of God as the happy God. Well, it's translated the blessed God, but actually it's this, it's just the ordinary everyday word for happy. God is a happy God and he has made us to share in his happiness. The religion of the Bible is a happy religion. Remember Jesus' words, I have come. Why have I come? That you might have life and life in all its fullness, life in abundance, overflowing life. Not a constricted life, but a life that overflows with with delight and joy. The religion of the Bible is a happy religion. Now, you know, I don't mean that believers don't experience sadness, deep sorrow, pain, or even unimaginable anguish of heart. You know, I don't mean that. I've known Christians whose lives have been punctuated with unrelieved darkness. And the book of Psalms addresses that, the 88th Psalm. It ends in those memorable, if remarkable words, darkness is my only friend. Here is, here is a man whose, whose confidence and hope is in God. And yet all he can say at the end, after he has poured out his anguish, is to say darkness is my only friend. There is unrelieved darkness in this experience. But look how Psalm 88 actually begins. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out to you night and day. So here is a man who knows that God is his salvation who knows that even in the darkness of his life, when all the lights have gone out, there is unrelieved anguish of heart. You can't read the 88th Psalm and not feel the pain of the psalmist. But the opening words of the psalm are there to tell us that notwithstanding his anguish of heart and the enshrouding darkness that seems to utterly engulf him, he is a man who actually is a happy man. The happiness may not be felt. We live in a world which is so superficial. Uh, we have so evacuated um, language of content and significance and meaning. We reduce the word happiness to jollity to a grin. But there is a happiness that never leaves a child of God, even in their darkest moments, because there is a happiness that says, even in my darkness, God is the God of my salvation. No one can take that from me. 
It's the happiness of being right with God. It's the happiness of having all your sins forgiven. You know it, but you don't feel it because circumstances, personal, circumstantial, mental, spiritual, emotional, have so punctuated your life that the sense of it is lost to you, but not the truth of it. The happiness of knowing that even in your darkest moments, you have an eternal home in the heavens not built by human hands. What I'm trying to say is that the religion of the Bible is a happy religion. God is a happy God. He he comes in his son to repair the misery that sin has brought into our world and brought into our lives. He's come to replace that misery with, with true happiness. A happiness that coexists maybe at times with a broken heart. A happiness that can live side by side with overwhelming unforeseen trials. Because it's a happiness that knows, even if it doesn't feel, that nothing in all creation can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus my Lord. The happy man The happy woman is the man or woman who knows that God is for him and not against him. That's that's the first thing I simply want to say. In Jesus Christ, God has come to make us happy. That surprises people, I think. We can so often give the impression that Christianity is joyless and grim. And there are times when The Christian life is grim and hard. But notwithstanding all of that, we can say with Paul, having nothing yet possessing everything. I've often thought of those words of Paul, 2 Corinthians 6, I think verse 10. Having nothing. And yet he says, I possess everything. Even when he's being beaten three times and shipwrecked and um, perhaps worst of all, being... um, maltreated by false brothers, you can still say, I still have everything because nothing and no one can take from me. The God who is mine and who has made me his. So that's the nature of true religion. It's happy. It's not superficial. It may not be seen in jollity. Although there are times when the Christian life is overflowingly jolly. But happy. God is a happy God. He's contented in himself. He enjoys himself and God wants us to enjoy him. But then secondly, and this would be more the focus for this evening. Notice the focus of true religion. Notice in these verses one and two that the happy man is noted both for what he doesn't do and for what he does do. What does he not do? He does not align himself or ally himself with the ungodly. What does he do? He delights himself in the law of the Lord. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Actually, in the Hebrew text, Um, 
there is a, a, a there is a change in the disposition of the language. The Hebrew reads, but in the law of the Lord he delights. And in Hebrew grammar, that's an unusual way of putting things, and it's done so intentionally to, to focus on what it is that gives this man his delight, his joy. It's the law of the Lord. He separates himself from the ungodly, and he delights himself in the law. That is the wholesome teaching of the covenant Lord. Torah, as you will well know probably, uh, doesn't simply mean um, commandments. It means wholesome teaching from the covenant Lord who delights in us, who rejoices over us with singing, Zephaniah 3, who wants to lead us in the ways that will increase our joy and deepen our fellowship with himself. Notice the nature of this separation. Isn't it striking that the happy man is noted first for what he doesn't do than for what he does do? It's a bit like the Ten Commandments. Why are there so many negatives in the Ten Commandments? Well, that's actually a no-brainer, isn't it? Because God speaks into a fallen world where sin has become the default. Notice that the happy man makes a conscious separation from the thinking of the ungodly, the behaviour of the ungodly, and from the company of the ungodly. He walks not in the counsel of the wicked. He stands not in the way of sinners. He sits not in the seat of scoffers. And there seems to be, in the Hebrew text here, an escalation from standing, uh, sorry, from walking, from standing, and then finally sitting. And there's nothing more ultimate in the ungodly than scoffing, mocking, mocking God, scoffing God. And happiness, the psalm is telling us, is found in making a conscious separation. Bad company corrupts good manners, 1 Corinthians 15. But how do we do that? Well, it's very interesting, isn't it, that in his letter to Titus, chapter 2, Paul says that the grace of God teaches us to say no. We're so accustomed to depersonalizing the grace of God. We, we think of the grace of God as a, as a blessing um, to enrich us. Well, I suppose in some measure it is. But the grace of God isn't something, isn't a depersonalized blessing. The grace of God is God giving us himself in grace. And when God gives us himself, he teaches us to say no. This is where Adam failed in the garden. Instead of saying no to the serpent, he said yes to the serpent. But the grace of God, this is where mortification of sin takes root in our lives, not by trying harder, though we need to try harder. Mortification is rooted in understanding the grace that is ours in union with Jesus Christ. The focus of true religion 
is noted in its negativities. It refuses to ally or align with the thinking of the ungodly, the behavior of the ungodly, even from the company of the ungodly. Now, of course, the scriptures never mean that we are to um, totally separate ourselves and live in little huddles or communities of faith. How else could we be light and salt? But there are times we need to say no and help our children to see the wisdom of saying no. But thankfully, this no is paralleled with a yes. Because the happy man is noted not simply for what he doesn't do, but for what he does do. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. True happiness, the happiness that all of our hearts long for, we were made to be happy. That happiness is nourished in this twofold mental, emotional, theological lifestyle choice. True happiness is nourished in saying no and in giving ourselves positively to delighting in the law of the Lord. You see, if true happiness had only been characterized by um, by verse 1, happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, we wouldn't want anything to do with it. It would be a happiness that would be austere, clinical, cold, negative, self-righteous. We'd end up saying, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like other men. I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't go here, I don't go there. But there's a beautiful balance in scripture, isn't there? Because the happy life not only has a negative focus, it also has a positive focus. The happy man delights in the law, the wise, wholesome, nourishing teaching of the Lord. Now here's a question. Why would anyone delight in the teaching of the Bible. It's a very visceral, evocative word, isn't it? Delight. Not just um, the happy man reads the law of the Lord, memorizes the law of the Lord, preaches the law of the Lord, but he delights in it. He, he savors it. He relishes it. Why would anyone delight in the teaching of the Bible? Let me give you three very basic reasons. First, because it is the law of the Lord that makes you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. If we didn't have the wholesome teaching of the word of God, we would know nothing of the salvation of God in Jesus Christ. The only Jesus we know is the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the word. And we delight in the law of the Lord because that law has led us to and set before us the saviour that we need, a saviour who holds out his arms all the day long to receive us. It makes us wise for salvation. Secondly, we delight in the Lord's law. And I think that's the emphasis. I think too often when we read Psalm 119 and the 176 verses, 
each verse apart from three, I think, mentions the law of the Lord in one way or another. And people will say Psalm 119 is about the law. No, it's not. It's about God, which the very last 176 verse of the psalm tells you. It's about the God of the law. And so a second reason why we delight in it, because it contains the wisdom we need to make right and wholesome life choices. God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. When we're not sure of how to think, what to do, where to go, God's given us his word. It's sufficient. It gives us principles as well as precepts, and we have to apply those principles. Will this be glorifying to God? Will this advance his kingdom? Will this make me more like Christ? Will this give me more of a servant heart? Will this use the gifts and the abilities God has given me? The word of the Lord, we need to feed upon it because it, it enables us to make wise and wholesome choices. And thirdly, we delight in it because in the law of the Lord, we discover who we most truly are and what we are for. We can so easily end up thinking we're a waste of space. We can so easily think that we're just a a concatenation of, of carbon atoms and molecules, that we're prisoners of of circumstance, and then we turn to the word of God and discover we're made in the image and likeness of God. We have dignity beyond anything we could imagine simply by being what we are. We matter not first because of gifts and abilities we have, but because of who it is that made us. Think of it in the realm of art. You could um, look at two paintings And one is painted by Leonardo da Vinci and the other is painted by someone like me who can't draw even a stick man, my children tell me. But we've each made a drawing. But then you look and think, that was created by a master. That has value. That has significance. And in the Bible, we discover Not only that we're made in the image and likeness of God, that we have value and dignity, but that we were made for Christ. All things were made by him, Colossians 1.16, and for him. Do you know what you're for? You're for Jesus Christ. That gives life absolute purpose and significance. It transforms all of life if we could only grasp that principle. God made me for his son. The blessed man, the happy man, delights in the law of the Lord. You see, every human heart longs for happiness. If you like, we're programmed for happiness. That's why we feel so deeply and keenly sorrow. Why? Because we're made for sorrow. We weren't made for bleakness and darkness. We were made for happiness. We were made to know the happy God. But sin has warped our thinking and we look in all the wrong places for happiness. I was talking to Chad recently and um, he was telling me that he had quoted some lengthy sections of John Owen. And we were chatting about how how unwise that is, normally speaking, uh, to 
expect our congregations to to grasp on our first reading something that we've been living with the whole week or the whole month before. But having said that, I want to read this lengthy quotation from Herman Bavink. Herman Bavink was one of the finest uh, Dutch Reformed theologians, latter part of the 19th, early part of the 20th century. Abraham Kuyper, Herman Bavink and Benjamin Warfield all died within a year of each other, 1920 to 1921. In his marvellous book, A Reasonable Faith, Bavink, in the opening chapter, has this closing paragraph that when I first read it, I just about memorised it. It was so beautiful. The prose was beautiful. The cadence was beautiful. But the theology was profound. Try and follow with me. It's a little lengthy, but take what you can from it. All men are really seeking after God but they do not all seek him in the right way, nor at the right place. They seek him down below, and he is above. They seek him on earth, and he is in heaven. They seek him afar, and he is nearby. They seek him in money, in property, in fame, in power, and in passion, and he is found in the high and holy places, and with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit. They seek him, and at the same time they flee from him. In this, as Pascal so profoundly pointed out, consists the greatness and miserableness of man. He longs for truth and is false by nature. He yearns for rest and throws himself from one diversion upon another. He pants for a permanent and eternal bliss and seizes on the pleasures of the moment. He seeks for God and loses him in the creature. When I read that, I think it beautifully sums up the Beatitudes that stand at the very entrance gate to the public ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 5. And I'm sure you all remember what that first word is that stands right at the beginning of the public ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed. Blessed. It's the normal Greek word for happy. Makarios. Blessed is the man. Who is the happy man? Who is he who's poor in spirit? Not the proud, the arrogant, the go-getter, but the poor in spirit. And he goes on to speak of the pure in heart, the meek. That's where happiness, that's where happiness is found. That's where Jesus anchors his public ministry. You want to be happy? Then here's the way to happiness, he is saying. Happiness is found in poverty of spirit before God, recognising you've got nothing to give him, but that he has everything to give you. I was wondering how to conclude this sermon, and as I was thinking about it, my mind drifted to John chapter 4. 
Because there in that fourth chapter of John, you'll remember Jesus encounters a woman of Samaria, Samaritan woman. And it's it's a very remarkable encounter. I would that we had the time to just walk through um, the whole passage. Uh, Jesus sets out uh, from Jerusalem. He, he doesn't know he's going to encounter this woman, but in the providence and purpose of his heavenly father, he encounters her by the well at Sychar. And Jesus begins to engage her. He evangelizes her, if you like. And he discovers that she's a woman who has had five husbands. The man she's living with, her sixth, is a live-in lover, very modern, very contemporary. And Jesus, in essence, says to her, I'm the man you've been looking for all your life. I'm going to be your seventh and last man. Here is a woman who has looked for happiness, searched for happiness, and thought she would find it in men. She tried one man, then another man, then another man, then another man. She'd gone through five of them, and they were husbands. But now she's just got a partner, a live-in partner, a bidy-in, as they would say in some parts of Scotland. And Jesus, very gently, but very, very confrontingly, says to her, Go and call your husband. Well, I, I don't have a husband, she says. Well, you, that's, that's true, said Jesus. The man you're living with is not your husband. You almost wonder why Jesus did that. Well, he does it because he knows that for this woman, there will be no help so long as she remains in the darkness. He needs to bring her and her life into the light. She needs to see that all her searching after happiness it's just like chasing after wind. You know the hymn that is based on Jeremiah 2, I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters failed. And so in essence, Jesus says, I'm the man you've been looking for all your life. Come to me and I will give you rest. I will give you contentment. I will give you happiness. I will give you what your heart has been longing for these many years. So the religion of the Bible is a happy religion, a happiness that can exist alongside sadness and sorrow and anguish of heart, a happiness that may not be seen on someone's face, but that nonetheless is still there. Because it's a happiness that is anchored in unchangeable truth. I am my beloved's and he is mine. So I hope in some maybe small way that brief exposition has been helpful for us. Let me pray for a moment. Father in heaven, we thank you that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, came into this world not to rob us of life, but to give us life. He came to make us right with you. He came to be our shepherd, our helper, our saviour, our friend. We thank you that he has sent the spirit into our hearts. 
and that, Lord, you have given us in Jesus Christ a happiness that can never be taken from us. It may at times seem eclipsed. We may feel at times it is very far off. But we thank you that more happy, but not more secure, of the glorified spirits in heaven. Help us, Lord, to rejoice with great joy that you have dealt in Jesus Christ with our sin, that you've made us your children, not because we asked you to, but because you are the God of all grace, who is kind and merciful to sinners. Hear as we pray, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.